We're looking now at a man who lived life to the absolute limits, an intrepid traveller from Westport to the West Indies and pretty much everywhere in between. An intimate of kings and emperors, he lived a life of incredible range and diversity. I'm talking about how Peter Brown, the second Marquess of Sligo. From a youth of hedonistic self-indulgence in Regency England, this Anglo-Irish aristocrat became a reforming, responsible legislator and landlord. As we'll hear, Brown became enshrined in the history of Jamaica as emancipator of the slaves and in Ireland as the poor man's friend during the most difficult of times. He's the subject of a biography by Anne Chambers. It's called From Rake to Radical, an Irish Abolitionist, and it's published by New Island Books. And Anne Chambers joins me now. You're very welcome to the programme, Anne. Tell us a little bit more about the background of how Peter Brown well, how Peter Brown, uh, second Marquess of Sligo from Westport House, uh, was born really at a very, I suppose, interesting and very uh, informative uh, period of history. 1788, you know, before the 1798 rebellion here, before the abolition of the Irish Parliament, all of that uh, right up to the early decades just previous to the famine. Uh, and we always think of the Great Famine, but we forget there was a famine in the west coast of Ireland in 1831 in which he was very, very much involved. Internationally, you have the Napoleonic Wars, which he became involved with. You have all of the Regency Book period, which he was very much involved in. So I have to tell you that for through his life, I've been led on a fantastic adventure because he had a great one himself. Uh, now, the the rakish period, uh, first of all, certainly, I mean, reading the book, it is fascinating when you come across the the associates, one of whom would have been Lord Byron, for example. Mm. He was very, very friendly with Byron. He was. You know, when, when I started writing this biography, which indeed took me eight years and 15,000 Original manuscripts and letters, this fellow sent uh, letters like we write texts today. Um, his life really is divided into three parts. One is, as you said, the Regency book, this young uh, aristocrat with uh, more money than sense who gets involved in the Regency period in London particularly. And that to me was an eye opener. I view, knew very, very little. I l learned about Byron, of course, at school as a poet, but never knew what was behind the sex, drugs and rock and roll if it had been around at the time. They got up into everything. They met at Cambridge where, where how Peter actually did get a degree. Byron didn't. He sent his bear, I think, to get it uh, <laughs> instead. And they lived that life of the Regency indulged youth. And it was fascinating to go to see how that, you know, how it really changed the whole of society at the time when the Regent came into power. The father, George III, very, very uh, hardworking man, although he had his, his problems with his mental capacity. And this Regency, the buck taking over and instituting this life for his comrades. And indeed, uh, how Peter himself was best buddies with Byron and they went off on the proverbial world tour and ended up out in Greece and uh, went on the usual searching for treasures out there. Indeed, how Peter brought some back and which are now on view indeed in the British Museum on Room 11 there. But all of that brought me on a great journey throughout Europe during that period of time. And then you go to the second part of his life, and that is a landlord in the west of Ireland in the most difficult of times leading up to the Great Famine, where there's an explosion of population and the land and very poor land over which he reigned in the west of Ireland, was expected to try and accommodate 
growing families, an impossibility. We have 135,000 farmers today and they're still complaining, you know. Then you had about 7 million people trying to live off the land. So you see him there in a totally different attitude and I often think that his marriage to the daughter of the Earl of Clanricord changed him totally and that can often happen as we all know and as women hope, of course, uh, uh, present day. And it changed him into a great liberal, pro-Catholic emancipation. Very liberal towards his tenants of he had about 8,000. You know, and then you go to the third part of his life, which is transferring his the liberal attitude he brought with him as a landlord in the west of Ireland out to the West Indies. He spent time in jail. What yes. happened there? Well, again, we go back to the Regency period. When he was in Malta on his world tour, he hired a ship to go, as I said, treasure hunting in Greece and inadvertently took three seamen from a man of war. Now, his grandfather was the great Admiral Howe, and that's how he gets his name, who was the saviour of England, of course, when he saved them from the invasion of the French in the 1790s. And when he came back, taking the three men, he found out that they did belong to the British Navy. Now, uh, England was at war with France at the time, so it was a huge problem. So when he comes back after his travels in Europe, he was indicted. A celebrity trial at the Old Bailey in in 18. 16, and he was confined to prison in Newgate for four months and fined the enormous sum of £5,000. So, uh, you know, justice uh, went past his status as a, as a Marquis and his money. You mentioned Catholic emancipation. In fairness, he was a supporter of mm. uh, Catholic emancipation from quite early on, before he got married, before he mm. uh, entered onto this, what you would call liberal uh, cycle of his of his life. And uh, did he inherit that from his father? Oh, yes. The Brown family were originally Catholic family and like everybody who had some property were forced to change to the Reformed religion. You know, if you didn't do that, you didn't make it. And as a biographer, I always have to ask myself the one question, what would I have done in a similar set, set of situation. Let me tell you, the truth can often hurt <laughs> as well as reveal. Um, and they did change. Um, his great-grandfather changed. But they always became, they became the leading lights of emancipation in the west of Ireland. There were a few other, there are Lord Fingal here on, in, in the east coast, of course. And they led the, the movement for emancipation before Daniel O'Connell mm. then took it over and made it far more in-your-face kind of a, a a thing. So he he voted against his own party in the House of Lords and all his letters say that until something is done for our Catholics here in Ireland, I will vote against you. And he kept that right up until Catholic emancipation came in, in 1829. Now, he was uh, he was the Earl of Altamont, Lord Altamont. Mm. He was uh, also the Marquis of, of Sligo, even though most of his uh, land yes. was in Mayo or Galway. It's a, it gets a little bit confusing. But... Um, Talk to me about the the Brown family as slave owners. How far back does that go? Not very far at all. They inherited their two plantations. Well, one was a sugar plantation and the other was was known as a pen for farm animals in Jamaica. And they inherited that from their Kelly grandmother. Dennis Kelly had to leave Ireland during the penal laws. He was a lawyer because he was not allowed to practice in Ireland. But if you went to the colonies, you could be whatever you wanted to be. And he ended up as Chief Justice of Jamaica and married into the plantocracy in Jamaica. He had an only daughter, Elizabeth. She came back to Ireland and fell in love, hopefully, with uh, how Peter's grandfather. And that is how they inherited these plantations in Jamaica. Now, 
You know, we get very emotive about uh, slavery and it's a very, very, uh, um, it's a very live issue today and quite rightly so. But, you know, we have to look at the word slaves and slavery within the context of the time it happened. Where the Browns were concerned, they never went to their properties until how Peter himself went in. in but they did in, take in the Asia. money. Now, the money was, when I looked at the accounts for their, their slave income or their sugar income, you know, like all absentee landlords everywhere, be it in the West Indies or in Ireland, they were taken advantage by their middlemen. And the middlemen were their agents and their lawyers who ran the estates on their, in, in their name out in places like Jamaica. And it's amazing for a young Regency book like How Peter, when I found letters, even at the time that he hadn't really taken on the full responsibilities of his station, either in Ireland or in Jamaica, that he was beginning to start talking about the slaves on his his plantations. And I found letters like asking his agent, was it true that he had heard from somebody else in Westport who had other contacts with plantations that his slaves weren't well? He set up a hospital for them while he was there. Then he had this naivety. He said to the slaves to put up notices all around the plantation that if any slave had any problem with his overseer, he was to write directly to him in Westport, Ireland. Now, a certain naivety, but shows what was going to happen when he became Governor General of Jamaica. He already has this very unusual integration even from a distance with his black workers on his estates. Rewind a little bit and uh, tell me about the course of the abolition of of, mm. of, of slavery, which uh, um, slavery itself, the importation of slaves mm. is abolished in 1807. That's so he's right. only, he's a, a teenager at that stage. His mm. father is still alive. So his father ha- has control of the, of the estates. Then you have, you know, the great campaign, the William Wilbur forces, Daniel O'Connell as well. 18, what happens in 1833? Well, in 1833, a law is passed the missionaries uh, from the West Indies, particularly the Baptist men- ministries, are making the issue of slavery far more aware to the general public who have been putting, may I add, tea or sugar in their tea for the last 200 years. And in a way, you know, if there's no demand, there's no supply. So we have to think of that like we think with the drugs issue today. The same thing apply there. And the Baptist missionaries were bringing it to the attention of the general public. And I must say that it was women's groups in England who were beginning to speak out against slavery. Now, the British government then were forced into an abolition. And I say forced because there was huge, huge commercial interest to try and keep slavery there because the bottom, as we know, fell out of the sugar market once slavery ended. So there was a great commercial side to it. Shippers, agents, people who made, you know, rum from molasses. All of these people had all an interest in the continuation of slavery, not just the planters. We forget that at times. There's a big commercial side to to sugar production. And cities like Bristol as well. And Bristol and Liverpool, Mm. you know, and Cork and Limerick were allowed to uh, supply the colonies in the West Indies with salted meat. So farmers in the area would have to look at their connection with slavery as well. But anyway, the government of England introduced what was known as the apprenticeship system, that they were going to give freedom to the black people of the West Indies colonies, but, and the big but was in eight years time. And how Peter Brown was appointed Governor General of Jamaica in 1834 to implement what was known as the apprenticeship system. 
Again, uh, let's rewind a little bit because the the planters, the slave owners, were paid a considerable sum in compensation, far more, for example, has been often pointed out than was paid by the British government uh, to uh, alleviate the effects of the famine in Ireland, something Mm -hmm. like uh, two and a half times as much. Um, How did that work out? How much was made available and why was that money made Uh, available? £20 million was given to all slave owners in all of the islands in the West Indies, all of the British, uh, don't forget, you also have Spanish, you also have Dutch, you have other colonies and French, of course, as well. And how Peter had 250 slaves working on his two estates at the time and he was given £5,500. Very, very small in comparison to the £6 million that was given to the planters in Jamaica. £6 million went to Jamaica. So he got 5500 After coming out of uh, that, he was appointed, as I say, Governor General of Jamaica to implement this weird structure called the apprenticeship system. Now, he arrives in Jamaica in April 1834 with his children. He had 15 children in all. So, I mean, eight of them made that horrendous voyage and his wife pregnant with their next child over to Jamaica. And I can see... Almost immediately when he arrived, he was so shocked by the savagery of the system he encountered and the inequality of it, that in a way, you know, he was inexperienced as well as a politician. He had never really entered into the political arena. He always had people representing him in politics. He didn't like speaking uh, publicly either. And in a way, the naivety of him, he should have been, I suppose, a governor who would be objective in between the planters and the slaves in the hope of of getting something together. But what he saw, as he said, my heart overruled my head. He couldn't stomach it. And immediately the Jamaican parliament knew that they had somebody here that was not going to be on the side of the planters. They must have assumed they were onto a good thing because here was somebody who had been an owner, a planter. And was still a planter. Mm. And it wasn't. And you can see the change in him there. And when you read his letters and when you read his letters to the Jamaican Assembly and to people back in Britain, including the King of England, you can see this huge... He said, I arrived in Jamaica uh, to implement apprenticeship and I left it to implement full and complete emancipation. So what did he try to do which got under the skin Mm. of the planters? Well, firstly, he tried to get them to stop the savagery, he said, uh, which was repugnant to humanity. And these were the uh, flogging of females. He saw that with his own eyes. He went to his own estate and he introduced immediately a method of payment for the black workers on his estate. And isn't it funny, in in 1996, his descendant, Jeremy XI, uh, went back to give the museum in Jamaica some of the actual currency that his great-grandfather had got made. That was the first time it was ever done in Jamaica. Secondly, he started employing people of colour, and that's what they were called. We don't like to use that and we shouldn't use that today. But black people were employed for the first time ever in his administration. He gave an open hearing, as was said in the Jamaican press, to any black slave who had a problem with his master. And most importantly, he got 80 independent magistrates to tour all around Jamaica to interview people who were working under the apprenticeship system to make sure that the black workers were being fairly 
done by their white owners. He, like he did in Westport, when he tried to set up multi-denominational education in Westport, was stopped by the Roman Catholic uh, Archbishop of Tume and by the local Protestant minister. They didn't want near the twain shall meet. He set up an educational system for black children in Jamaica to that they may get the greatest advantage from their eventual freedom. In other words, that they would be educated because they, nobody, nobody black had been educated before. And he set up two of these uh, schools on his own property in Jamaica. All of which obviously endeared him to the white planters He of did, Jamaica. and I think from an economic point of view as well, he tried to establish agricultural societies in Jamaica to steer them away from the dependence on sugar. Because if you, I went to Jamaica to do my research and I was struck by the sheer, it's a fantastic country that could grow anything. But the domination of the sugar on it and with its implication into slavery, he wanted to stop that. So he did a lot of practical good and he was literally, you know, run out. Well, how did they run him out? Well, this, as he said himself, they made Jamaica too hot to hold me. And that's exactly what they did. They got him on a, a point of law insignificant in the parliament, but it, it, it undermined his authority and the English government wouldn't back him. And when he wrote to the prime minister and said, I am your league, your representative here, but yet you're going with the planters. And he said, I will not continue. And he didn't continue. But that wasn't the end of it. I mean, when oh, he comes back. When he comes back, he became yeah. so effective in the anti-slavery movement. Firstly, he visited America on his way back and consulted with the people who were starting, just starting the emancipation movement. Don't forget, America didn't free their slaves for another 35 years. And he met them in New York and Boston and they really talk about him and how his heart is in this mission. And when he came back, he, he wrote... Wherever the cause of slavery in Jamaica is, I hope I'll be at my post. And he certainly was. So he started writing about his experiences. He produced three pamphlets on slavery. And the most important thing he did was at the great debate which occurred in the British Parliament in 1836 because now the British government knew that the apprenticeship system, you can't promise somebody freedom in 10 years' time. They want it now. Mm -hmm. And they knew that that had to happen. So the great debate took place and it was his pamphlet that influenced it. But what, when the government still dragged their feet about granting full emancipation, he stood up in March 1838 in the House of Lords and said that he was on the 1st of August of that year freeing all the slaves, the 250 slaves on his own plantations in Jamaica and then he left the government with no option but to bring in full emancipation because you couldn't have free slaves in, in two plantations and not have them in the rest. When he was leaving Jamaica, the black people, and I'm sure their money was really, you know, very, very scarce, they all came together and I found out in the National Library in Jamaica 1,500 names of black people to thank him for what they had done. And they presented him with a lovely silver candelabra, which indeed was on view in Westport House until recently. They called a town after him as well. And they called the first free slave village in the world, Sligoville, which I visited and indeed spoke to many of the descendants of the first free slaves who, that was their town, and it's named Sligoville in his honour, yes. How is he seen in the West Indies? How is he seen in Jamaica? Is he seen as a former slaver or is he seen as oh, an emancipator? Champion of the slaves. But I have to say that in Jamaica, like in Ireland, we don't like to talk too much or didn't like to talk too much about the famine. When you talk about slavery in Jamaica... 
it's a thing that is too painful yet. But how Peter Brown, second Marks of Sligo, has a very, very special place. And we should be so proud of him here in Ireland. And indeed, when I may I add that when they're pulling them down from their plinths, maybe a plinth should be erected to this man from the west of Ireland who did so much to end the slavery. How come I know uh, quite a lot about Daniel O'Connell's campaign against slavery? The fact that Daniel O'Connell, for example, refused to travel to America until the slaves were emancipated. And I know or knew precisely nothing about what um, how Peter Brown had done. I did know that the Browns were slavers and that they had plantations, mm-hmm. but was completely unaware of this. Why is that? I'll tell you. I think here in Ireland, we have a sense of racism against our former ascendancy, you know, and anybody here in Ireland with the title, I think, is presumed to be a bad landlord and in this case, a bad planter. But, you know, not all people are the same and the same applies whether you have a title or you don't. Earlier this year, Trinity College denamed their library, uh, famously used to be named after George Barclay or George Berkeley, as he is uh, better known in a part Mm. of the United States, which is close to my heart. Um, Do you think perhaps that uh, even though he has his own associations with slavery, it would be no bad thing if they were to rename it the Brown Library? Well, I can't understand this campaign that is trying to hide away slavery. You know, we should be looking at slavery from down and dirty in the time it happened, not from the heights of the 21st century. So many people were involved in slavery. As I said, everybody put a spoon of sugar into their coffee or tea in the 18th and 19th century were all implicated. You cannot rewrite history. You have to learn from it. And hopefully we will. The slavery alive and well today, as we know. Where Berkeley is concerned, if they wish to, yes, I think Sligo, because many of his, I think there's around a thousand of his letters in the manuscript department. I I looked at them all there in, in the manuscript department in TCD. If they wish to rename it, why not Sligo? But I don't think this rewriting of history really, you know, we should, as I say, learn from it, not not try relive it. Well, my guest is Anne Chambers. Her book is called From Rake to Radical, an Irish abolitionist, and it's published by New Island Books.